So ever since 2016, when uh, Donald Trump first became a Republican candidate, you've had a narrative within the mainstream media in America which claims that the Republican Party is divided, that there is some sort of civil war going on between supporters of Donald Trump and the old guard faction. And what the primaries so far this season have shown is that there actually is no such uh, dissension within the Republican Party. The voters, if not the intelligentsia, if not the donors, but the voters who actually matter, they are wholeheartedly and enthusiastically behind Donald Trump. Hello, welcome back to the Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill, and my special guest this week, Daniel McCarthy. Daniel, welcome to the show. Thanks, Brendan. Great to join you. So, Daniel, I want you on to talk about what's going on in America, to try and make sense of the political events there. Um, Huge things are happening, and uh, I guess we have to start by talking about Donald Trump. He seems to be soaring at the moment, uh, and in your capacity as a commentator and editor on American affairs for quite some time. I really want to get your views on on why that is and what's going on with Trump and with the uh, the presidential campaign more broadly. So we've just seen Trump win in the Iowa presidential primaries uh, and in New Hampshire this week as well. He's won convincingly in both states. He's left some of his challengers, his fellow Republicans, in the dust. Vivek Ramaswamy's out, Ron, even Ron DeSantis, the great white hope of some respectable right-wing commentators, he's out as well. Uh, Nikki Haley is clinging on for dear life. Let's see how long that lasts. But Trump is soaring. He seems to be moving ahead. He seems to have an extraordinary amount of momentum in the uh, primaries for the Republican candidate. So I guess I want to start off by asking you, how much momentum do you think he has uh, going forward? Um, And what do you think explains that momentum? What's driving it? Where, Where does it come from? So ever since 2016, when uh, Donald Trump first became a Republican candidate, you've had a narrative within the mainstream media in America, which claims that the Republican Party is divided, that there is some sort of civil war going on between supporters of Donald Trump and the old guard faction. And what the primaries so far this season have shown, and in fact, really, I think Iowa and New Hampshire are the most competitive races that we're going to see in the Republican primary contest. What they've shown is that there actually is no such uh, dissension within the Republican Party, that uh, the the voters, if not the intelligentsia, if not the donors, but the voters who actually matter, they are wholeheartedly and enthusiastically behind Donald Trump. And they showed that in Iowa. They showed it in New Hampshire. These are two states that in terms of their um, political character could not be more different. Iowa is a very conservative state. It has a lot of uh, evangelical Christians. New Hampshire is a state uh, where you have a, a sort of higher than average levels of education. It's a state that uh, traditionally elects quite a number of moderate Republicans. It's a state, in fact, where John McCain, who was uh, sort of the um, the paragon of moderate Republicans, uh, or perhaps, you know, in some respects, libertarian-leaning Republicans, although McCain was also, you know, very much a... Uh, 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 an enthusiast for American wars endlessly, which uh, is not a very libertarian position. But in any case, John McCain, back in, in the year 2000, uh, trounced George W. Bush in that uh, New Hampshire primary. So it's a place where someone like Nikki Haley, who is you know basically a, a, a female replica of John McCain, could have been expected to do very well. And the fact that she didn't, she still lost by about 12 points to Donald Trump. Uh, again, that shows that Trump has completely consolidated his grip on the Republican Party. Um, even that is putting it the wrong way. I mean, what it shows is that Republican voters honestly identify with and see Donald Trump as their champion. And in fact, it's very telling that about 70% of Nikki Haley's supporters, if early early surveys are correct, uh, actually were independents or people who did not identify as Republicans. Yeah, I want to come back to the question of who voted for Nikki Haley, particularly in the New Hampshire primary, because I think that's uh, very interesting. But On the Trump question, what you said, I think it's a very accurate description of what's happening with the Republican Party is that large numbers of voters, the people who really matter, are lining up behind Donald Trump. But some listeners will be surprised to hear that because we know that within right-wing commentariat circles and even within the kind of establishment Republican circles, there is a lot of disdain and opposition to Donald Trump. There has been for some time. Uh, we all remember the Not Trump movement. I don't know if they're still going. I'm sure they're still doing something or other. You know, people uh, on the right who would vote for anyone rather than Donald Trump. Um, I've read so many pieces over the past couple of years from old conservative voices in the US saying, look, 
Ron DeSantis is our man or Nikki Haley is our woman, anyone but Trump, you know, just forget Trump. So there is this hostility to Trump from sections of the right. But you say that actually amongst voters, there's obviously it's not a uniform love or support for Donald Trump, but there is a large swell of support. How do you explain that divide between voters, uh, I guess, grandees of the party and um, the commentary that swirls around the Republican Party? and actual voters. What do you think is lying behind that divide? Well, it's simply that uh, so much of the professional conservative movement in America, the magazine writers and the think tank uh, scholars and uh, a number of other people who you know think of themselves as being able to speak for conservatives or speak for the Republican Party, speak for the American right in general, um, these are chiefs with no Indians, right? These are um, leaders with no followers. And the whole thing has a bit of an air of phoniness to it. Uh, these are folks who, you know, because donors have given them money to set up their think tanks or their magazines, uh, they're able to present themselves rather fraudulently as the uh, tribunes of uh, the American people, or at least the tribunes of the American right. And it turns out that when you actually put to the test the degree of support that these people command, the number of people, uh, number of voters who are reading the magazines, who are reading the think tank reports, who are listening to these grandees and their supposed wisdom about politics, it turns out the voters aren't listening to them at all. They don't even know, in many cases, they don't even know these people exist. To the extent that they do know that these people exist, the voters are actually rejecting their counsel. They hear it and they say, well, you, you know, obviously do not agree with my priorities as a voter. Uh, you, you know, really would not be someone I would trust to defend people like me in a fight. Donald Trump is someone we do trust to defend us in a fight. And so they're going with uh, Donald Trump. Um, in fact, what you're actually seeing right now uh, among a lot of the conservative commentariat in America is a blaming of voters. So it's not just they're, that they're never Trump. It's not just that they dislike Donald Trump. But now they're falling back on their old sort of you know habits of claiming to be superior to democracy. Democracy is a bad thing, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, what, what they're basically doing is they're just, you know, they're, they're in denial about their own unpopularity and they're in denial about their own irrelevance to politics, even though they've made their entire lives commenting on it and uh, pretending to offer expert solutions to problems. And it turns out that, you know, absolutely no one is listening to them. And the whole thing is, you know, fraudulent from stem to stern. Yeah, it's so remarkable how when a layer of uh, the political class starts to do badly amongst ordinary people, suddenly they start theorizing on the problem of democracy and what a terrible idea democracy has always been. I mean, we've seen similar developments in the UK, especially after the vote for Brexit or any time the Labour Party gets trounced in the polls in the, at the ballot box, you'll get all these theorists coming out or saying, well, actually, the problem is democracy itself. It gives too much power to stupid people and it leaves good people like us on the sidelines. And yeah, I've noticed a similar uh, development amongst sections of the right in America. Um, so I want to ask you what you think why you think Trump is still popular with lots of Republican voters, people in uh, states as diverse as Iowa and New Hampshire, and I'm sure we'll see uh, other results as well. Because uh, one of the things, there's a bit of a contradiction in how people explain this. So some people will say, well, they like his style. They like the fact that he's full of bluster and he's funny and he sticks it to the man, but they don't necessarily like his substance. They don't follow all of his ideas. They're not on board with everything that he, he promotes policy-wise. Then sometimes you'll hear the complete flip reversal of that, where people will say uh, uh, they like his substance, they like his ideas, they like his economic program, for example, but they're not big fans of his style. They agree that he is a bit too outspoken, he's a bit too colourful, he sometimes says um, rude or obnoxious things. I, I, my view has always been that it's a bit of a combination of the two, that it's both his style that some people like and his substance. They, they uh, agree with many of his policies, but they also admire the thing that he is damned for, which is so often referred to as unpresidential. Uh, that's the term that gets attached to him so frequently. Uh, that part of it, they're quite enamoured by too, in the sense that he does seem to be sticking it to the kind of phony decorum of establishment politics. So it seems to me to be a rather more complex affair than some commentators uh, would allow. How, how do you uh, de define and understand the popularity of Trump amongst larger numbers of voters? Well, you're exactly right. It's the combination of both of those things. So it's been interesting to look at uh, the exit polls and entry polls of the uh, Iowa caucuses and the New Hampshire primary. Uh, in both of those contests, uh, voters said that immigration was their number one issue. 
And Donald Trump, more than anyone else, you know, talks about immigration and has made immigration a you know point on which you know politics is going to be settled in you know the 21st century in America. Um, before Donald Trump, establishment Republicans tended to run away from immigration. They would give it lip service, but they would not talk about it in very bold ways. Donald Trump certainly does. Voters already responded to that back in 2016 when immigration was you know further down the list of their priorities. Today, because of the absolute disaster that Joe Biden has created at the American border, uh, voters are now saying that is their number one priority, especially within the Republican Party. And I think it's quite uh, logical that they are choosing Donald Trump as the person to be their champion for that issue. Uh, you also have, uh, you know, a very large number of Republicans agree with Donald Trump that Joe Biden didn't win the 2020 election. Now, I don't agree with them on that. I think they're mistaken. Uh, but I'm also not outraged by that. And I think that's the key difference. The political class in America says, if you are factually wrong about this issue, if you are factually wrong about, you know, the way the 2020 election worked, then you are an opponent of all constitutionalism, rule of law, democracy. You're an evil, subversive person, and you should probably be thrown in jail, which, of course, is what they're trying to do to Donald Trump. It's what they've done to, you know, a lot of rioters who certainly, you know, they broke the law on January 6th of 2021, and they do deserve punishment. But they're being turned into political prisoners at this point, basically, and it's going much farther than just, you know, prosecuting them for trespassing and whatnot. By the way, I mean, you're probably aware of this. And I think some of uh, your listeners will be as well. But America actually has a very long tradition of quite, you know, sort of robust and even shocking uh, degrees of um, civil disobedience and protest against government. And in fact, you know, back in the early days of our republic, there was a uh, actually an armed uprising. And uh, Thomas Jefferson, who wasn't yet president, but was one of the you know, leading politicians in America, uh, he wrote a letter to a friend in which he said he actually likes a little rebellion now and then because it's necessary in order to keep, you know, a sense of liberty in the country. And he was not approving of you know, these armed rebels, but he was saying, you know, this is this, he was actually saying they were much less dangerous than the way in which the government might crack down on them. He was more worried about that. So, you know, even some of the, the more outlandish and excessive elements of the Trump, you know, phenomenon uh, actually have a remarkable precedent uh, in American history. Anyway, so a lot of Republicans uh, do agree with Donald Trump on the question of 2020. Um, so again, it's quite logical in that sense that they would support him. Uh, they also do like Donald Trump's style. And I think, you know, Donald Trump is uh, phenomenally entertaining and engaging um, and, and humorous and funny um, politician, which is, you know, a, a massive contrast with someone like Ron DeSantis or Nikki Haley. I mean, did anyone ever laugh at a Ron DeSantis line during, you know, uh, you know, the many months in which he was debating these other candidates and whatnot? Um, Trump, on the other hand, I mean, every every uh, lecture of his, every talk uh, has some some sort of laugh line or many of them, in fact, um, some of them, you know, being jokes that he aims at himself. So it's not that Donald Trump's a humble man, but he does have a good enough sense of humor that he realizes sometimes, you know, even poking fun at himself can be, uh, you know, uh, a way of engaging with audiences. So audiences and Republican voters in particular, they really strongly identify with Donald Trump. And Ron DeSantis's campaign, you know, he liked to say Donald Trump is running on his issues and Nikki Haley is running on her donors' issues, but I, Ron DeSantis, am running on your issues as the voters. But in fact, what, what uh, DeSantis didn't get right is that the voters see Donald Trump's issues, including all of his legal problems, as being their issues too. They really have a very strong sense that Donald Trump uh, you know, understands people like themselves, would stand up for them, you know, in a fight. And uh, that sense of connection, that emotional tie is what uh, I think, um, you know, explains Donald Trump's tremendous momentum right now. Hi, it's Brendan here. I just wanted to remind you that you can still buy my book. It's called A Heretic's Manifesto, Essays on the Unsayable. And I've really been blown away by the response to it from readers, reviewers, Spike supporters. People really like this book, and I think you're going to like it too. It covers all the insanities of our time, from climate change hysteria through to COVID authoritarianism, through to the trans ideology. And it basically makes the case for more freedom of speech, more debate, and more heretical thinking to challenge the conformism of our times. So what are you waiting for? Go to Amazon right now and order my book, A Heretic's Manifesto, Essays on the Unsayable. And now on with the show. Yeah, that's a very interesting point that lots of voters see his issues as their issues as well. Uh, and I guess that means that their concerns about how the establishment treats them get bound up with Trump's concerns about the, how the establishment is treating him, which I'll, I'll come on to soon because it is quite shocking. 
Um, I, I, like you, I, I don't agree with Trump and some of his supporters who say that 2020 was stolen from them and that it was a, a stitch up. But at the same time, the, the fitter vapors that we've seen from some elite Democrats in the US and from, you know, the Remainer establishment here in the UK over that affair has been just extraordinary and hard to take. You know, we know that Hillary and others uh, insisted that 2016 had been stolen from her, possibly by the intervention of Moscow. Um, we saw similar arguments after the victory of the vote for Brexit in 2016 as well, where lots of the establishment here said it was fake, it was un, it was unfair, it was unconstitutional, we need to reverse it. And the same people were reaching for their smelling salts as soon as Trump said 2020 was stolen. So that was a bit too much to stomach. Um, you mentioned there DeSantis, and I did want to ask you about what what went wrong with Ron DeSantis and, and why you think he fizzled out. I think you nailed it a little bit where you said that where Trump is funny <laughs> and humorous and entertaining, Ron DeSantis turned out not to be any of those things. And I th- for me, one of the most uh, depressing moments for him is when the Washington Post interviewed people who suffer from social awkwardness, all of whom are expressing sympathy for DeSantis, who seem to suffer from some of the same social ailments as them. Just a woodenness and awkwardness and an inability to engage. Um, do you think that was at the root of the DeSantis problem? I mean, he, he, he fought a good fight against woke in Florida. He was very popular online, especially amongst right-wing internet users who are worried about the rise of wokeness and gender fluidity in schools and other eccentric ideologies that they see as problematic. He waged a pretty impressive war against all that stuff. So I was one of the people who thought that when he entered the presidential race, this would be interesting. This might be spicy. This might take things in a new direction. But it seemed to fizzle out. How, how do you explain the failure of the DeSantis camp? Yeah, there are several dimensions to it. One is that um, everyone read a little too much into Ron DeSantis's victory in 2022, winning re-election in Florida. And that was a very impressive victory. It was, you know, uh, a landslide of about 20 points. But he was actually running against an extremely weak opponent. Uh, his opponent, uh, Charlie Crist, was a former Republican governor of Florida who had switched parties and become a Democrat. And the Democratic Party was bitterly divided going into that election. Um, also, you know, the 2022 uh, midterm elections... Um, are elections that would historically be good for Republicans, but in fact they weren't, uh, or at least they were disappointing, uh, you know, uh, that time. Um, but they weren't necessarily, uh, you know, sort of disappointing everywhere. And I think Florida, you know, st- uh, stuck to type in terms of being, uh, you know, producing the kinds of results you would expect in midterms for a Republican-leaning state uh, at a time when a lot of other states departed. So DeSantis deserves credit for his success in Florida. But it also wasn't necessarily all that miraculous or, you know, something that would um, be indicative of his fortunes in other races. And it's worth remembering that in the original uh, race uh, that elected Ron DeSantis as um, governor in the first place back in 2018, he only beat his Democratic opponent there by a fraction, not even one percent. It was a fraction of a percent uh, by which he was able to become governor in the first place. And that was with Donald Trump's support. So uh, DeSantis was not quite the giant slayer that he had been built up to be based on what happened in 2022. Um, the way DeSantis campaigned, I think, was uh, a good example of how oftentimes it is a candidate's or an individual's greatest strengths that also wind up being their greatest weakness. So DeSantis would campaign in places like Iowa and uh, New Hampshire on the basis of his record as governor of Florida. Florida is a southern state. Iowa is Midwestern. New Hampshire is, is, is northern. Um, you know, Florida is culturally and, um, you know, uh, in terms of climate and temperature as different from other states as you can get. And I just think he often sounded like he was running for president of Florida and not president of the United States. And I don't think he, he prioritized enough the idea if you're running in Iowa, you're running in New Hampshire and you're running in 50 states, you have to sound like you're interested in more than just what you've done in Florida. He had a great record in Florida. It was totally appropriate for him to spotlight that. But I think he made himself sound like he was less than a national candidate by always talking about Florida. Similarly, one of his greatest strengths was his response to the COVID lockdown, you know, uh, hysteria of, you know, three or four years ago. Uh, Ron DeSantis mostly kept Florida open. And that was a heroic thing to do. It was the right thing to do. And uh, he's he was absolutely correct during the, the uh, presidential campaign to emphasize that, to talk about how, you know, even Donald Trump was supporting people who were calling for shutdowns, lockdowns and 
you know, just a, a complete, um, you know, overreaction to COVID. Uh, the problem is that, you know, COVID is not most voters' number one issue in the year 2024. If this were back, you know, in 2020 or 2021, yeah, that might have, you know, gained more traction. If, um, you know, voters, um, you know, uh, really did uh, want to carry on, you know, a, a long-term, uh, you know, rearguard action against the people who had, uh, you know, gone to excessive lengths during the COVID lockdowns, uh, that might have worked well for DeSantis. But as it is, he seemed to be campaigning on yesterday's, you know, top issue as opposed to today's. Um, even though DeSantis is also fantastic on immigration. So even though that's the number one issue in, uh, uh, you know, it's, it was the number one issue in both Iowa and New Hampshire. Um, I think that DeSantis sort of got the, the balance wrong. He put too much emphasis on, you know, Florida, he put too much emphasis on COVID, not enough talk about immigration. And when he talked about immigration, it was often more to sort of, uh, attack Donald Trump for not doing enough rather than to, you know, talk more about what he was going to do himself. Um, he said, for example, well, I really will build the wall. Now, on the one hand, it's true. Donald Trump was uh, less successful as an immigration restrictionist president than his voters expected him to be. But it's very easy and cheap to say that I'm going to do better, you know, if you're Ron DeSantis, if, if you're not going to spell out how you're going to do better. And the fact is, you know, the deep state, the federal government's permanent bureaucracy is always going to resist you and try to stop you. Uh, Congress, you know, is always going to be uh, difficult to work with. And if it's controlled by Democrats, it's going to be actively against you. So it really is very difficult for a president to achieve the kinds of things that both Trump and DeSantis want to achieve in terms of immigration uh, reduction. So I think those factors and then combined with, you know, some degree of awkwardness on DeSantis's part, I have to say that might be a little bit exaggerated. I think it's been, become a bit of a cliche now about DeSantis. One thing that may not be as well known, however, is that DeSantis uh, had had a reputation among other Republicans, both when he was a congressman and also now in Florida, of being less than a team player. And uh, a lot of people who, who worked with him in Congress and a lot of uh, legislators in Florida, for example, uh, they find DeSantis to be, you know, um, uh, personally uh, a little too um, heavy handed. And they don't feel like, you know, he is someone who, uh, you know, wants to build a team around him, but rather that he wants to be, you know, sort of a, a star in his own right. Now, obviously, Donald Trump has a lot of that, too. But Donald Trump also has this intuitive sense of, um, you know, sort of uh, interacting with people and uh, and making the miraculous thing about Donald Trump. He can insult someone to his face <laughs> and that person will still love him. <laughs> and and we have seen that on the stage, you know, in, in these victory celebrations where, uh, you know, uh, he's he said some very strange things to people like Tim Scott, for example, the Republican uh, senator from South Carolina who dropped out of the presidential race has now endorsed Donald Trump. Trump has been, you know, a little bit um, disrespectful of him on uh, on the, the stage and at these victory celebrations. And Scott, you know, is still, uh, you know, enthusiastically supporting Trump. That's not just a sign of, of cravenness, but it actually is a sign of Im Im immense charisma on Trump's part. And actually, Bill Clinton had that same ability. Uh, Bill Clinton would, you know, talk to a rival like Newt Gingrich, who was the leader of the Republicans in Congress in the 1990s. And even though Gingrich was, you know, Clinton's arch enemy at that point, uh, Gingrich has said he felt mesmerized and hypnotized by Clinton's charm and just Clinton's, you know, sort of force of personality. So that's a real thing. Um, you know, in part, it's not necessarily that DeSantis was all that deficient, but it was rather that Trump has a quality that is just very hard to replicate or compete with. Yeah. And I wonder if in relation to DeSantis and the fizzling out of his campaign, I wonder if it might speak to the curse of establishment support, because one of the interesting things um, about DeSantis is that he was spoken about by some people as uh, the acceptable populist. You know, I remember a piece in the Washington Post a couple of years ago written by an old Republican speechwriter from, from the 90s and the 2000s who said um, he's a populist who's also presidential. And uh, it was really interesting, this piece, because it said that DeSantis has the ability to flip the switch and to go from being a populist bruiser who takes sticks it to wokeness to being, you know, a cool-headed executive, almost like uh, populism becomes a kind of a mask he wears or, or a style he occasionally adopts. But he, he can also get down to brass tacks. He can also be the technocrat we sometimes require. I thought that was just an interesting way for him to be analysed. And there did seem to be an element where he was almost coronated uh, by sections of the right-leaning punditocracy. You know, he's he's a conservative bruiser when it's necessary, but he's also a pretty calm, level-headed guy, which is what America needs. Did you think? Do you think that became part of a problem for him that he did come to be seen as rather too cozy 
I guess with precisely the kind of establishment that lots of voters have been bristling against for the past eight years. And what do you think that tells us about the ongoing popularity of Trump? Is it still the case that people, they're not done with their establishment wrecking? There's still things that they want to do to an establishment that they feel has ignored them and and left them behind? It's a good question. I do think that uh, Ron DeSantis is honestly both uh, you know, competent in traditional political ways, while also being um, something of a populist and, you know, very committed to opposing wokeness. So um, in that case, he really, I think the Washington Post was probably correct, um, not necessarily, not in the sense of him switching, you know, um, flipping a switch, but rather that he actually does naturally integrate those two uh, kinds, kinds of styles of politics. That said, you are onto something and you are correct. Um, you know, there was this uh, really humiliating moment for Ron DeSantis early on, in his campaign, where uh, he went, uh, he, ta- he talked to Tucker Carlson on Fox News. Tucker Carlson, you know, uh, quite rightly asked him some tough questions about Ukraine. And Ron DeSantis said, well, we're not going to, you know, keep sending money to Ukraine. He basically, you know, came out as someone who was opposed to America, you know, um, underwriting that conflict and being involved in that conflict. Well, Ron DeSantis then uh, got a tongue lashing from all of his uh, more establishment conventional, um, you know, not just supporters, but donors. Uh, They basically called him on the carpet and they said, how dare you say these things, you know, against the Ukraine war. And within about 24 hours, um, Ron DeSantis had moderated or modulated his position. He hadn't completely reversed it. He hadn't completely retreated, but he clearly uh, was cowed. He clearly was much more reluctant to take such a bold stand, uh, you know, on Ukraine. And um, as a result, I think he wound up looking foolish both to uh, populists who don't want us to be involved with Ukraine. And he wound up looking, you know, uh, foolish as well to people who do want us to be involved in that conflict. And so on, on both sides, I think people said Ron DeSantis is a guy who, um, I mean, it's very ironic because DeSantis during the, uh, his contest against Nikki Haley and his debates with Nikki Haley, he would constantly say that she, um, she backs down. She, uh, is someone who in a fight will always turn around and run. Um, and unfortunately, in this, you know, very high profile instance concerning Ukraine, back at the beginning of Ron DeSantis's campaign, he did exactly that. He basically turned around and uh, stuck his tail between his legs. And um, as a result, you know, I think people um, started to say that, you know, this was neither a reliable populist champion, nor is he someone who, you know, the establishment really wants to get behind wholeheartedly. By the way, I think that was, um, you know, one of the, you wound, he uh, wound up being neither fish nor fowl. So he was not, you know, as populist and as willing to wreck the establishment as Donald Trump appeared to be. And so, you know, voters who want that, which I think is at this point a majority of the Republican Party, uh, they weren't all that enthusiastic about DeSantis because he didn't have that same degree of anti-establishment fervor. And then uh, voters who want to restore the establishment, and there are some, uh, they too didn't have any reason to vote for Ron DeSantis because they thought, well, you know, he may not be as wild as Donald Trump, but he is still, you know, uh, a, a right-wing politician of the new kind, a populist of some sort. So they didn't want to get to behind him either. And that's why it's very sad because I think Ron DeSantis is a much more talented and generally, you know, sort of better, um, you know, right-wing politician, certainly than someone like Nikki Haley. And yet Nikki Haley, who's basically a neocon, you know, uh, for the 20, uh, for the 2024 cycle, Nikki Haley is the one who's the last opponent left standing to Donald Trump as opposed to Ron DeSantis. DeSantis had you know, he had 150 or 200 million dollars behind him, you know, after the 2022 midterm elections. This was a guy who had absolutely everything in terms of he had experience. He was governor of a very large state. He had, you know, 150 or 200 million dollars in support. Uh, Ron DeSantis should have been able to do a lot more with that money than he did. And I think part of it was that people just didn't know whether they considered him, you know, well, they didn't consider him enough of a champion either for the new Republican Party or for the old style version of the Republican Party. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, neither fish nor fowl, that's that's always going to be a problem for a politician. Um, okay, let's talk about Nikki Haley. Um, I must say, as a, as a non-American, I'm slightly perplexed by Nikki Haley, and I'm not entirely sure what she is or who she is, but I, uh, she does seem to me to represent something of a throwback to Bush era Republican politics, especially on on foreign policy, and I'm not convinced that's what lots of Republican voters want. Um, it's certainly uh, not what I want, and and I'm sure not what you want either. Um, 
I thought the New Hampshire results for her were very interesting because um, lots of people who supported her were independents, uh, uh, not defining as Republicans. Also, um, it seems that lots of the support she got in the New Hampshire primary was from people who opposed Trump. So it wasn't exactly this kind of burning enthusiasm for Nikki Haley's vision for America and the world, but really because they wanted to stick it in the eye to Trump. So Trump remains the sun or the storm, whichever one, whichever way one wants to look at it, the sun or the storm around which everything else swirls and 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 moves. Uh, and so even some of the support she got in New Hampshire was essentially an anti-Trump vote rather than a pro-Nikki Haley vote. And it also seems to me that some of the support she got there was from the more educated sections of society, the, I guess, the more upper class sections of society. Uh, whereas uh, it seems that some of Trump's vote came from the other side of the tracks, one might say, which is is not particularly surprising. So I'm trying. I'm using all this information to try to piece together what she represents. Is she just a restoration candidate who wants to drag the Republican Party back to, uh, I don't know, the late '80s, the early '90s, the 2000s? What do you think she represents, and and why do you think she, she's problematic from from your view? Yeah, the uh, big divide in the Republican Party and also throughout American politics now, in fact, it's a division that kind of distinguishes the Republicans from the Democrats also, is this question of education. And university-educated people are tending to support uh, wokeness. They're tending to support Joe Biden. And those of the university-educated who are within the Republican Party, uh, they certainly strongly dislike Donald Trump. And some of them are drawn to a candidate like Nikki Haley. Um University education, I mean, we, you know, we're constantly told that this is always a good thing, that our economy needs it, that, you know, this is going to uh, widen people's minds and, you know, sort of give them a connection to, you know, great ideas. But actually what university education has become, especially in America, and you see this, you know, with all of the scandals that are now overtaking Harvard University, the most prestigious university in our country, um, what, what university education has become in large part is indoctrination. It is you are told that, you know, in economics, neoliberalism is uh, the truth. And, you know, there are there may be left wing and right wing varieties of neoliberalism, but there's really, you know, no way that anyone could possibly, uh, you know, have skepticism towards uh, free trade, for example, or mass immigration. That you know, economics also requires mass immigration. Uh, similarly, the ethical outlook and the historical outlook that the universities perpetuate now says that the West is sort of the source of all, you know, wickedness in the world. And uh, the West must constantly, you know, sort of um, scourge itself with uh, the cat of nine tails whipping itself on the back and uh, must, uh, you know, that the West must become more like the rest of the world. So the rest of the world, you know, may have more poverty. It may have, you know, um, uh, a variety of institutional and infrastructure failures. But we're told, no, no, the rest of the world should really be the model for uh, the United States and and Western Europe. Um, So it's this extremely self-loathing you know, sort of civilizational outlook. And yet these university educated persons, you know, I'm I'm university educated myself, but they are told, well, you know, by embracing this very negative view of Western civilization, you are actually signaling that you are more enlightened and more virtuous and more cosmopolitan than the hoi polloi, than, you know, these Americans who demonstrate why democracy is such a bad idea. And you can't give these ignorant persons the vote because they'll go wild and they'll vote for Donald Trump. And, you know, they'll affirm America as a nation state and they'll shut down immigration and, you know, they'll, they'll put them some tariffs on television sets. Um, all of that is a nightmare to university educated uh, or university indoctrinated, uh, you know, Americans. And um, that's a powerful class. It, there's a lot of, you know, um, a lot of Americans. It's a large number. But also, uh, you know, it, it includes people who are most influential in the business world, in the media and, uh, you know, in many other walks of life. So that that is the divide, and that's really the, the question that American politics right now is addressing. In the Republican Party, the question was, is it going to be a party of uh, not just the university educated, but those who subscribe to the ideology of the universities, or is it going to be a party of, you know, a segment of the American people, a very large one, uh, you know, the ordinary, you know, sort of, uh, uh, you know, grassroots American uh, that you would have, you know, thought of in the 1980s or 1990s, for example. And uh, the party has definitively answered that question. The voters have answered that question. They want Donald Trump, and they do not accept the ideology of the universities. Uh, The Democratic Party, on the other hand, is basically uh, has taken the opposite path. And uh, it's funny because within this university ideology, there are some 
uh, points of rupture or, or uh, discontinuity. So on the one hand, you know, Joe Biden is someone that appeals to these highly educated voters. But within America's universities right now, the Israel-Palestine question is, you know, extremely divisive. And you've seen that uh, Joe Biden is having a very hard time unifying his party right now because there are, you know, a substantial number of people, university educated people on the left who look at Joe Biden and say, well, Joe Biden is really genocide Joe. This is a guy who, you know, uh, might as well be, you know, the worst of imperialists from the 19th century, uh, you know, in terms of his, you know, sort of view of, uh, you know, Palestinians and view of, you know, um, you know, the United Nations and the fact that the United Nations, you know, is always voting against America and against Israel. Uh, Joe Biden, for, you know, understandable political reasons, he is, you know, he's going to continue to support Israel. He's going to continue to, you know, uh, resist the rest of the United Nations. But uh, in his own party, that's now extremely controversial. And I think that's going to be a weakness for him going into the uh, 2024 election. Nikki Haley is, on the other hand, um, you know, she uh, is a, you know, a, a comprehensive war hawk. I mean, she really is. Back when she was governor of South Carolina, you know, people thought of her as being kind of a, just a libertarian leaning, somewhat conservative governor. She wasn't all that controversial, really. But um, since she left uh, the uh, governor's mansion in South Carolina in 2017, she seems to have apprenticed herself to the memory of John McCain. And she has been auditioning for, you know, seven years now to be the next iteration of neoconservatism and the John McCain ideology. And uh, she is, you know, I mean, it was it was breathtaking to listen to her during her de the debates, you know, leading up to the primaries, where she's in favor, basically, of conflicts with Russia, China, uh, getting more into the Middle East, uh, you know, getting more involved in, you know, conflicts in every corner of the world, uh, more or less simultaneously. And uh, it's completely insane. Uh, she is the candidate of Forever Wars. And, uh, you know, it's interesting because the Republican Party after 2001, after 9-11, in the, uh, you know, at the height of the Iraq war, yes, it was a party that was very enthusiastic about George W. Bush's foreign policy and the Iraq war and whatnot. But that actually didn't last all that long. And uh, by 2008, for example, um, you know, when George W. Bush is leaving office, yes, the Republican Party nominates John McCain as its presidential candidate that year. To actually have a very impressive insurgency, uh, you know, led by the libertarian congressman Ron Paul within the Republican primaries that year, where Ron Paul is denouncing empire, he's denouncing foreign interventionism. And in fact, Ron Paul has a very dramatic showdown with New York Mayor Rudy Giuliani, who is seen as being kind of the, the poster child for, uh, you know, um, the war on terror, as, as it was called back then. And uh, they had this showdown in South Carolina, which was, you know, a state that has a lot of military veterans. It's a very right-wing state. You would expect it to be a state that would be wholly supportive of someone like uh, Giuliani taking a very hawkish line in foreign policy. And in fact, Ron Paul actually got an enormous amount of support. And, you know, it was kind of the um, the beginning of his campaign, not the end of his campaign, when he ch challenged Giuliani on the Iraq war. And that was only the beginning, of course, of the entire Republican Party's change of perspective on foreign conflicts. And uh, basically what Ron Paul did in 2008, Donald Trump did uh, on an even greater scale in 2016. And everyone said that Donald Trump was going to implode because he was actively criticizing all of these wars. He was, you know, constantly, you know, attacking George W. Bush for starting the Iraq war. And uh, that turned out not to be the case. It turned out that voters actually supported Donald Trump on these issues. Um, Nikki Haley, as you say, she was a flashback. She wanted to go back to the idea of, you know, um, she would have been, you know, a candidate very successful in the year 2003 or 2004. But in 2024, uh, you know, we've had 20 years of experience of nation building failure in Afghanistan. We see that uh, the Iraq war was, you know, we got into it because of lies, and it turned out to be a total disaster. And now we see that, you know, we can't manage these conflicts that we are, uh, you know, uh, underwriting with our, our tax dollars, like in Ukraine. So uh, the American people as a whole, but especially in the Republican Party, they have utterly rejected, I think, that kind of neoconservative foreign policy that Nikki Haley embodies. Have you signed up to Spiked's daily newsletter yet? It's called Today on Spiked. Every day you'll get a roundup of all our content, plus some exclusive commentary from the Spiked team. So to never miss a thing on Spiked, go to spiked-online.com slash newsletters and sign up to Today on Spiked. Yeah, it, it makes me laugh when Nikki Haley refers to Trump as the, the chaos candidate when you think about the chaos unleashed by precisely the kind of foreign policy that she supports um, around the world over the past 20 plus years. 
uh, genuine chaos uh, in, through those regime change wars of, of the kind of foreign policy that she would back. Uh, and then the other side of me thinks, well, even where things were calm, possibly in the United States itself, it's a calmness that many working class voters in particular didn't feel that they benefited from and they were still losing their jobs. They were still being looked down upon by uh, the university educated elite. So, you know, what? how did they benefit when society was supposedly less chaotic than it became under Donald Trump? Um, I want to ask you, you mentioned there... Uh, the word class, which is um, not a word we're supposed to use in polite society anymore. We talk about it in Britain quite a lot, but uh, uh, I don't very often hear discussions about it in the US. Um, I guess politics is is refracted in different ways in America, especially the divides between different communities. But I do think class is an important element of the discussion about where politics is going in the United States and where the Republican Party is going and what's going to happen with the next uh, with a presidential election, because it seems to me that um, I think a lot of American voters probably feel similarly to voters in Britain and Europe, which is that both their cultural security and their economic security are under attack. So their way of life is constantly being questioned by the new woke ideologues who are constantly seeking to raise our awareness, which, which essentially means re-educate us in correct think on gender issues, sex, race, etc., history. Um, and, uh, so they feel that their culture is under attack. Their way of life is under attack. What their community stands for is under attack. And at the same time, so is, so is their standard of living through job losses, through the outsourcing of production to other parts of the world, through the complete, um, decimation of many working class communities. We've seen similar here in the North of England. And I know that in Rust Belt parts of America, there's been a sim similar development, so how important do you think the class question is in the popularity of Trump? Is is a lot of the support he's getting still from working class voters or uh, as you sometimes refer to them in the US, middle class voters um, who are trying to do two things, I guess. Firstly, improve their standard of living in an economic sense, but also improve their standing in society in terms of being treated a bit, with a bit more respect by people in Washington, I guess. Yeah, you've picked up on both sides of the question, which uh, is something that most of the American pundit class is ignorant of. Uh, you'll often see these, you know, sort of conventional, you know, sort of Reagan and, uh, you know, business oriented uh, conservative pundits say, well, you know, things are not really that bad for the working class or for the middle class. Uh, you know, they do have jobs. The, you know, uh, maybe their income has grown a little bit. Uh, you know, they certainly have plenty of consumer products. So what do they have to complain about? Well, the fact is, I mean, not only are there some real economic problems, but even beyond economics, there is this, you know, very um, accurately perceived uh, notion, which, you know, ordinary people can feel that they are looked down upon and that they are considered to be uh, a kind of impediment to the advancement of America into the 21st century. And that's an advancement which is going to involve liquidating our old industries uh, and in liquidating our old industrial workforce. And it's also going to involve liquidating our history and, uh, you know, liquidating the very, you know, sort of um, not just the way of life, but even even the, uh, you know, the character of, uh, you know, basically everyone who's not university educated and looking forward to this, you know, sort of new globalized uh, utopia in the 21st century. And uh, that's the fundamental dividing line that there are people who want, you know, America to remain uh, the, the country that they've known for all their lives. And then there are other people who say America is a bad thing. You should get rid of it. You should have, you know, basically, uh, yes, America will exist as a kind of administrative zone for, uh, you know, some economic regulations and, you know, basically a lot of um, uh, re-education, as you had mentioned, a lot of uh, sort of moral instruction by a new priestly class of, you know, sort of uh, university educators and whatnot. Um, but otherwise, that's it, that it's, you know, we're going to have a global world. The wars we fight are going to be fought about other nations' borders, not our own. The uh, economic priorities are going to be, you know, the growth of, uh, you know, uh, income in developing parts of the world, not the um, protection of income in, you know, the West or in America. Uh, this really is the program that uh, America's educated elite um, believe in. And it's, 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 a, it's a religious belief on their part. This is something that is a very deep, you know, not just intellectual, but moral and emotional commitment for them. 
And so uh, when they see the American people not joining in, not joining in in this program, they are outraged morally. I mean, they consider it to be you know blasphemous and heretical that the American people would support Donald Trump or would call for you know kind of slowing down immigration, slowing down globalization. This is you know as as uh, you know unbearable as any thought could possibly be to America's elite. You're right that class is the issue here. What's interesting in America is that you know, um, the way in which class gets defined changes over time. And clearly, uh, income and wealth are a, you know, a big part of it and a consistent part of it. But at this moment, uh, education seems to be uh, the defining element of the class divide in America. And uh, it's interesting, too, because you'll often see um, conservative, you know, conventional, you know, um, uh, pundits from the conservative side of things who will say, well, you know, Donald Trump has been a incumbent president. Donald Trump is very rich, therefore Donald Trump is the establishment. But uh, the, the truth of the matter is rather that Donald Trump is seen by the establishment as being a class traitor in the first degree. I mean, this is someone who is completely unacceptable to Harvard University, completely unacceptable to America's leading newspapers and you know respectable outlets of opinion, and completely unacceptable to America's uh, permanent federal bureaucracy. And uh, one of the things that uh, you know really scares the American establishment right now is that Donald Trump himself, but also, and in some ways, more importantly, a lot of the advisors around him and a lot of the more, uh, you know, sort of sophisticated supporters of Donald Trump, uh, they're all saying that when when Donald Trump gets reelected, uh, he will uproot this permanent bureaucracy in America. And that is an institutional, you know, uh, revolution, uh, which uh, terrifies the people who, you know, base their, uh, you know, claim to permanent power, not just winning elections now and then, but rather constantly having some degree of influence in the federal government. That's all because of this deep state, the federal bureaucracy. And if Donald Trump really is successful in taking that on, even if Donald Trump is unsuccessful, but simply brings to light what this deep state actually does, uh, that will be, of uh, you know, as far as the educated elite are concerned, that'll be a revolutionary move. But really, it's a counter-revolutionary move because the United States Constitution was not created to build this kind of bureaucracy. It is an unconstitutional post-constitutional, extra-constitutional development. And uh, the American people have never really been given a clear you know, chance to make a vote on this. Instead, this is something that has grown up and they've been told, ah, now you know, the Constitution is less important than all these regulatory agencies. By the way, that also, of course, ties in with uh, the permanent wars in foreign policy, uh, because something like the CIA is, for example, a um, uh, and what's euphemistically called the intelligence community. Isn't that such a, a warm and loving term for it? It assassinates people. It reads your mail. It taps your telephones. But you know, no, it's a community. It's the intelligence community. Anyway, the intelligence community is also unaccountable, and it has you know budgets that are not scrutinized. Uh, the American people don't really get a vote on it, um, and uh, it gets away literally with murder in many cases. So uh, there is a tremendous reckoning coming for uh, the American deep state at every level, and Donald Trump is an instrument of that reckoning. And uh, that explains why, you know, a lot of Americans who realize they've been betrayed by their own leadership class, uh, why a lot of Americans who have that perspective are supporting Donald Trump. They're also actually looking at, you know, some of these um, independent candidates out there. So uh, RFK Jr., uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., um, he appeals to some of these voters. So does uh, Cornell West, who's a, you know, a black um, scholar. And uh, it's funny because Cornell West was always, you know, he was a Harvard professor. He was one of the most revered, you know, African-American academics in the country until he decided to run against Joe Biden. And now if you read the left wing press in America, every article about Cornell West is about how he's, you know, dodging his taxes and failing to pay his alimony. <laughs> this is this is this is how the supposedly, you know, um, sensitive and caring and compassionate, you know, left now looks at, you know, a scholar like Cornell West. Oh, he doesn't pay his taxes. He's behind on his alimony. Therefore, you know, he's a monster. Um, it's really revealing. And it's because, you know, Cornell West is also threatening not just Joe Biden, but he's threatening this kind of consensus, you know, um, power base that the deep state represents. Yeah. I mean, the way the establishment lines up against anyone who questions the elite consensus opinion or, or, the, or, or the, just the way in which consensus operates it's just quite extraordinary. Uh, a similar situation in UK politics as well. And I think you're absolutely right. You know, this idea that, well, Donald Trump is the establishment because he's wealthy. He's a famous businessman. He's been in the White House before, of course. I mean, it, it overlooks the ex extent to which the establishment, as we would 
properly understand it, just hates him and very often makes a cultural critique of him. You know, he eats cheeseburgers. He says the word uh, pussy. He doesn't obey the new linguistic rules and codes of, of how people like us speak and how we behave. So there is this extraordinary cultural disdain for him from the establishment, as well as, of course, political hysteria and so on. Um, okay, Daniel, I've just got a couple more questions for you. I want to ask you about the lawfare against Trump um, and the fact that it seems not to be working and possibly is backfiring. So, you know, there are so many cases. I constantly lose track of the number of cases against Trump in relation to top secret documents or accusations of um, sexual uh, misbehavior or whatever else it might be. Uh, And then also, of course, there have been these recent attempts, which even I have found shocking. Someone who's not easily shocked by the behavior of the the new elites. Uh, These new cases where there have been attempts to strike him from the ballot paper entirely. We've seen that in Colorado. We've seen it in Maine. We've seen it in other places too. There are these campaigns and these efforts to have him legally blocked from standing to be president or standing to be the Republican candidate or whatever else it might be in in certain states, strikes me as just an extraordinary attack on democracy that you would have this um, elite endeavor to prevent the people from being able to choose the person they want as their leader. It goes against every single democratic ideal. What have you made of those uh, legalistic campaigns against Trump? They speak to uh, both a desperation and also an authoritarianism within the elites, don't they? And 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 do you think, if anything, they've helped to push some voters further into Trump's arms because they can see that he was right all along and that the establishment doesn't want certain voices to be heard in political life? No, that's right. I think the magnitude of the legal um, harassment of Donald Trump uh, has shown a lot of voters that uh, their instincts of identifying with Donald Trump are correct and that Donald Trump really is a threat to the establishment because otherwise it would not go to these extraordinary lengths to try to you know, throw him off the ballot, try to throw him in jail. Um, this is uh, you know, a campaign that's never been waged against any other American leader. And the reason it's being waged against Donald Trump is because he really does represent something different and a change. Um, you're right that, um, you know, the claim of the uh, Ron DeSantis camp was that, oh, Ron DeSantis never had a, a chance to get the nomination because every time Donald Trump was indicted, he became more popular. But of course, that's a question-begging argument. Uh, normally, a politician does not become more popular as a result of getting indicted. The reason Donald Trump gets more popular when he gets indicted is because people realize that the indictments are political you know, uh, uh, persecution as opposed to genuine uh, you know, legal issues. And so uh, they see this um, correctly as an attempt to shut down democracy, as an attempt to deprive the voters of, you know, a chance to reelect Donald Trump. That's why voters did the exact opposite of what DeSantis or others might have expected and actually made Donald Trump much more popular um, as a result of these indictments. Um, There's polling right now, which I've, you know, I've heard various, uh, uh, again, establishment conservative pundits bring up, saying that if Donald Trump actually gets convicted of any of these, uh, you know, accusations, that at that point, voters will turn against him. And I do not believe it. Because, you know, when you ask someone in the abstract, well, if someone's convicted of a felony, won't that, you know, uh, give you a worse impression of them? Then yeah, in the abstract, you might say, yeah, that would. But um, when people actually look at the kind of things that Donald Trump might get convicted on, um, I think that's gonna, you know, the reaction that people will have will be, oh, this was a political prosecution and persecution. And so, uh, no, we're not going to have a worse opinion of them as a result of it. Um, I mean, just think about how crazy this is. We have Donald Trump, you know, facing all of these legal obstacles, all these legal um, attacks, many of them, in fact, the majority of them uh, tied in with the riot at the U.S. Capitol on you know, January 6th, 2021. You never have these kinds of uh, legal problems for people who, for example, uh, told a bunch of lies and got us into the Iraq war. So, and, you know, matters of life and death uh, do not, you know, raise any kind of legal problems for a, a president who does the wrong thing and gets, you know, millions of people around the world killed, perhaps. But if you're Donald Trump and uh, you are saying things and doing things that embarrass the establishment um, or that threaten them, you know, even in the least, uh, you will face 91 counts of indictments and, uh, you know, an attempt to not, not only, you know, get you off the ballot, not only prevent you from returning to the White House, but, you know, they want, they want him to die in jail. That is, that is what they're trying to, to do here. 
Um, of course, you know, there again, they are completely misreading the American public. And uh, if the establishment in America turns Donald Trump into a martyr, I think that's going to, you know, solidify Trumpism for a very long time. The legal cases uh, are, yeah, there's such a baffling array of them. Uh, most of them are, you know, completely political in nature. Um, some of them, you know, Donald Trump probably did mishandle classified documents. Uh, this is something that actually lots of other politicians and ex-presidents and their national security advisors, they've done it before as well. And, you know, I mean, I, I can see, okay, maybe Trump, uh, you know, uh, was in violation of the law, but it's a relatively small thing. And also, you know, I think that the federal government keeps far too many secrets anyway. So in this case, you know, breaking the law is not entirely a bad thing. By the way, this doesn't really get discussed very much, but it looks like one of the reasons Donald Trump held on to some of those classified documents is because people, certain people from his own administration were telling lies about Donald Trump's foreign policy record. And uh, Trump kept the documents in order to prove that he was not going to go to war, that he was not a reckless, you know, lunatic. And, um, and that's, you know, that again is something that I think the establishment sees as a threat. They want to tell a certain narrative of Donald Trump that is, it's actually self-contradictory, but that, but the establishment still wants to tell it. They want to say Donald Trump was weak when looking at, you know, all of these dictators around the world, that Donald Trump was, you know, going to give Putin and, you know, Xi Jinping and every other, you know, sort of uh, bad entity around the world, uh, a blank check to do whatever they wanted. But they also want to say that Donald Trump was this reckless lunatic who was going to start World War III at any minute. And uh, the truth is, Donald Trump realized, you know, the United States can't simply remove most of these, you know, leaders from power around the world, and that America has to deal with some very nasty customers all around the planet. And, um, you know, diplomacy is the right way to do that, as opposed to constantly rattling the saber and constantly beating up small countries in order to uh, look tough. So, um, you know, I think Donald Trump had good reason to hold on to those documents, even if it was, you know, not entirely within the letter of the law. The rest of the charges, you know, most of them are, uh, you know, they seem to be completely fabricated. Uh, this effort to keep him off the ballot is very interesting. Um, I wrote a column recently where I, I, I pointed out that actually the American electoral system doesn't even work the way that uh, a lot of the people campaigning for this would like, you know, people to believe that it's, it's all a bit of a sham. Um, America is, you know, we have this healthy kind of indirect uh, system where, for example, in the, in the, uh, the primaries like we just saw in, in New Hampshire, what people are actually voting for when they vote isn't the candidate himself directly. It's actually for a set of delegates who then go to the Republican National Convention in the summer, and those delegates are pledged to vote for the candidate that the, the public voted for in the primary. Um, so that indirect layer means that even if you took Donald Trump's name off the ballot, as long as he could still get the delegates, and there are various ways to make sure that he could, even if his name didn't appear, he would still get you know the number of votes he needs at the convention in order to become the Republican nominee. The American general election works in the same way. It's actually the electoral college, not voters directly, that uh, you know elects the U.S. president. Uh, voters, when they vote in their states, they vote for. They see on their ballot, you know, the president and vice president are listed, uh, and you know you've got different tickets for different parties. And uh, when they vote for a president and vice president, what they're actually voting for are the electors, uh, the set of you know delegates basically who then go to the electoral college and make the actual vote for president. It's supposed to be based on, you know, the way uh, people voted in the states. It's supposed to, you know, it's, it's a, an intermediary step, but it's not meant to be a change in the outcome. Uh, nevertheless, that intermediary step also means that if you took Donald Trump off the ballot in various states, his vice presidential candidate would still be on the ballot. And if people voted for that vice presidential candidate, that would still get the electors, the delegates who would go to the electoral college and decide the president. Now, then after that, it goes to the United States Congress. And this is exactly what happened on January 6, 2021. The Electoral College results go to the United States Congress. The United States Congress counts the vote and certifies it and declares the winner. So you're getting this very interesting setup where if, you know, if things didn't go to the United States Supreme Court, what would happen is these states that have tried to take uh, Trump off the ballot, uh, they would fail. Donald Trump would be the Republican nominee. If Donald Trump went and won the presidency again, it would then go to Congress, and the question would be: Would Vice President Kamala Harris? Um, would how would she respond to electoral college votes that she considers illegitimate? And of course, that's the very thing that was the question uh, on January 6, twenty twenty one, when Trump wanted Mike Pence, who was Vice President then, to summarily throw out electoral college votes that Trump didn't like. So the Democrats are, are complete hypocrites here. They've actually set up a system 
that is doing the very thing that they accuse Donald Trump of doing. Uh, and they're doing it in a kind of more systematic and sinister way. Now, the U.S. Supreme Court is going to intervene long before January 6th of 2025. And the Supreme Court is probably going to say that, uh, you know, these attempts to throw Trump off the ballot are completely illegitimate. Uh, because, I mean, literally, th- these are just elected officials, Democratic officials, and in some cases, Democratic judges, who are just arbitrarily deciding, okay, you know, we think Donald Trump is guilty of insurrection. He hasn't been convicted of anything like insurrection, but it's sufficient if our opinion, our legal opinion, is that he should be thrown off the ballot. So it really is, you know, arbitrary. It's like something you'd see in a third world country. And uh, it's a disgrace to American democracy. I think the United States Supreme Court will overthrow all of these, you know, uh, attempts to get Trump off the ballot. But of course, the Democrats also want to demonize the United States Supreme Court. And they've done that, you know, the United States Supreme Court overthrew uh, Roe v. Wade, overturned Roe v. Wade with the Dobbs decision about two years ago. And that meant that abortion became a matter for states to decide rather than the federal government. And Democrats were outraged about that. And it really amplified Democratic turnout in the 2022 midterms and uh, and subsequently as well. Um, Democrats want to get Americans, want to get their own voters as angry as possible at the United States Supreme Court in order to maximize, you know, uh, the amount of uh, whiplash turnout uh, in the general election in 2024. So I think it's all a kind of cynical ploy where they want to damage Donald Trump's reputation, even though they, they know this can't really stop him. And then they ultimately want to try to discredit the Supreme Court in order to, you know, sort of create their own kind of left wing populist backlash. That's very well explained. Yes. Um, Okay, Daniel, my last question for you is about how you see things panning out in the next few months. Um, There's a large amount of momentum behind Trump in relation to the Republican primaries, uh, as we've seen and as we've talked about. How do you think that momentum can be sustained through to the presidential election and lead possibly to a second Trump term? Um, It seems to me that, firstly, he's got a huge amount of support from voters, uh, ordinary Republicans, everyday members of the party, supporters of the party. There's also the fact of the Biden-Harris administration and what a disaster it's been and how it's failing on so many different fronts and how it has completely failed to take seriously the concerns of vast swathes of the American electorate. Um, So in your view, can Trump cut through all this and become president again to the horror of the establishment? Because it really would send them over the cliff edge. What's your prediction about where things will go next? Yeah, it feels a lot like 2016 again. Um, So first of all, Donald Trump has effectively secured the Republican presidential nomination already. Uh, There's really no path for Nikki Haley to, you know, uh, mount a serious challenge to Trump. New Hampshire is the zenith of her campaign. There's nowhere else where she can do as well as she did uh, on Tuesday. And uh, so Donald Trump will be the Republican nominee. And we're in store for a long, protracted presidential campaign. Uh, We know that Joe Biden is going to be the Democratic nominee. Um, It's interesting, Joe Biden was not on the ballot in in New Hampshire. Uh, This is not because because there's any uh, campaign to kick Joe Biden off the ballot. It's rather because Joe Biden owes a great deal of his political success to the state of South Carolina, which is uh, going to be the next uh, major primary in February. Uh, And so Joe Biden wanted to change the electoral calendar for the Democratic Party to put the South Carolina primary before the New Hampshire primary. And New Hampshire, which, you know, has a tradition going back 40, 50 years of being the first primary in the nation, New Hampshire was not willing to go along with President Biden in that demand. So as a result, Biden said, well, I simply won't compete in the New Hampshire primary. So he chose not to be on the ballot in New Hampshire. He still, uh, you know, is on track to, to win that uh, as a write-in candidate um, very easily. So the, the whole idea that Joe Biden's weakness would lead Democrats to look for an alternative to him, that has not proved to be the case. And right now, there really is no alternative that can be put forward. The only thing that could happen, you know, in the most extreme scenario, uh, you know, Biden could resign or he could die in office. I mean, either of those things could happen. And in that case, the Democrats would have to, you know, choose someone else at their national convention in the summer. But I wouldn't count on that. It looks to be as if Biden-Harris will be the Democratic ticket in November of 2024. Uh, Donald Trump will be the, the Republican nominee. That much is confirmed as well. Big question right now is who Donald Trump will choose as his vice presidential running mate. And uh, I think Donald Trump has to do what he did not do in 2016. I think he has to choose someone who is loyal to him and someone who represents the same uh, you know, political perspective that Trump represents. Uh, someone like J.D. Vance, the senator from Ohio, would be a very good choice. Um, we saw enormous amounts of damage that were inflicted on the Trump administration by some people working for Vice President Mike Pence who were, you know, 
leaking information and trying to sabotage various, um, uh, you know, good um, populist nominees for various offices. So the vice president can actually be very influential and, uh, you know, damaging if he is uh, not loyal to the president. So Trump has to take that very seriously. It's going to be a, a tough selection process because Trump also wants to choose a vice presidential nominee who's going to, you know, help with uh, different demographics in the country, different segments of the electorate that Trump may have problems of appealing to, and uh, different geographic regions as well. Uh, someone like Tim Scott from South Carolina is a contender because he's African American and it would, you know, uh, kind of stick it to the Democrats if the Republicans had a diverse ticket. Uh, there's also pressure for Donald Trump to choose a woman for the ticket, uh, you know, as a way of uh, sort of competing with uh, Kamala Harris. Um, I, uh, I don't have a, a firm view as to, you know, what the probability is of Donald Trump picking someone loyal versus picking someone for, you know, demographic or geographical reasons. Uh, I expect we'll see a couple of weeks when a lot of possibilities will be floated, you know, in the media and we'll have to, uh, you know, we'll see a war of pundits about the different possible selections. Um, the powers of incumbency uh, with the American presidency are very, very great. Uh, the economy in the United States uh, seems to be improving somewhat, and more importantly, voters' perception of the economy is improving. Uh, so there are, you know, various factors which uh, give Joe Biden a shot at, at, at re-election. Um, I actually think if Joe Biden were to get re-elected, that would not be a disaster for Republicans or for populism, because Joe Biden has been such a weak president until now. He's only going to be weaker, you know, over the next four years if he had a second term. And uh, that would mean, I think, tremendous Republican gains in the 2026 midterm elections in Congress, and then most likely a Republican victory by a, a large margin in 2028. So even if Joe Biden wins this year, there is a, a silver lining for Republicans. But Donald Trump has a very good chance of returning to office this year and of beating Joe Biden. And, uh, you know, his vice presidential pick will be, you know, partly influential on that. You will see a absolutely relentless, you know, daily and in fact, hour by hour, minute by minute, campaign to demonize and uh, destroy Donald Trump in the media to an even greater degree than has happened up till now. It's going to be more intense than 2016, because at this point, uh, you know, the establishment in the media, they recognize that Trump really can win. In 2016, they thought, oh, this is so awful, but we, we, we have no, no fear at all that Hillary Clinton won't be elected president come November. Uh, now, you know, the uh, elite and the left, they recognize that Donald Trump is a real threat. And they will do absolutely everything they can in terms of character assassination and also in terms of uh, lawfare and trying to put him in jail. Everything they possibly can to stop him because he's a real threat and he has a real chance to return to the White House. Daniel, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.